0: Well, welcome, Deep Seekers, to episode nine. I'm Sean O'Callaghan. This is the Deep Seeker podcast. Our guest on this episode is Ant Williams. Ant is a freediver, psychologist, leadership expert, and world record holder for one of the deepest dives under ice with only one breath and no tanks. He can hold his breath for eight minutes, dive to 100 meters vertically, and swim 240 meters on one breath and might i add also a ted speaker as well and so welcome to you Ant. thanks for joining us on the deep seeker podcast thanks for having me no worries mate quite apt in fact when we start talking about deep seeking and your pursuits of uh everything below the surface of the water so quite uh, poignant that one but mate, i'd like to get straight into it with overcoming discomfort which is something that you would have enormous amount of experience being a free diver um and the kind of the justification we give ourselves when we stop and kind of backpedal and justify those ploys by our mind to stop and not overcome ourselves kind of, I guess you call them excuses, but sort of overcoming that discomfort and that feeling where we want to seek comfort, but we know that there's something better on the other side. Um, Can you just talk about that? Because naturally being underwater, you have no choice, but to overcome discomfort. So, what is it that stops us breaking through those discomfort barriers i think most of us seek a pretty comfortable lifestyle
1: and really try to minimize those numbers or those moments where we go outside of that comfort zone you know we don't like changing stuff too much we'd like to have a good routine we like to be comfortable feel secure um, and I think then most of us, what we do is we put in kind of fun moments of adventure that do stretch us and put us into into discomfort. Um, but we usually kind of keep those to a <laughs> to a minimum amount. It's just that in the sport that I have chosen with freediving, it's a sport that's all about discomfort. And there are a handful of sports out there that I think are similar and that they are all about discomfort. Like if you were to do the southern, you know, like these big events like the Southern Traverse in New Zealand or these, um, you know, Ironman events. They place you in discomfort for a long period of time. And, and that's, that's similar to freediving, where every single day that I train, it might be an hour and a half, might be two hours, but it's an exercise in dealing with discomfort because you can be holding your breath for four five, six, seven minutes, uh, and then you have a couple of minutes breath, uh, you know, rest and recovery, and you got to go again. And most people who, who join my sport of freediving, I notice that there's a pattern where a lot of people will join and then they'll just get to a point where they're going, oh, the sport's really, really uncomfortable. I think I'll just do it socially. And only a small number go on and to do it competitively because it's so uncomfortable. But my personal take on it is that, that ability to push yourself into those moments where you're experiencing a lot of discomfort, are those moments where you grow the most as well, where you learn the most about yourself, how you respond to things, and, and that can permeate into other areas of your life. So I'm a huge advocate of doing things that, that either make you a little bit scared or make you feel uncomfortable.
0: And so with that, you know, extending off the back of discomfort, I mean, let me put some perspective on this. Uh, I overheard a story that you were talking and only caught the very end of it with regard to you in the Arctic and diving under ice. So not only we're we talking discomfort in association with the, the breath hold and the lack of oxygen and the ability to dump the CO2, I think that's what it is. And then the other part to it just being absolutely freezing cold. And you mentioned something about not being able to prepare. So, I mean, what is an experience like that for those of us who, you know, I've done a very minimal amount of breath training and it is quite an extraordinary experience which you get into the sort of zones that you go into a little bit later, but diving under ice, in the Arctic. I mean, what does it take for you to overcome the extraordinary discomfort that goes with that? Yeah. Well, the cool thing about what I do in
1: my sport is that everyone has tried it. Everyone has held their breath and got to that point where they go, ah, oh, this feels really bad. I think I have to breathe now because that discomfort really hits you. And so, so my sport is about getting to that moment where you get that discomfort of your breath hold, but then going for a Oh, getting in that discomfort and staying in there for a very, very long time. So a couple of years ago, I'd been doing this sport for, oh, it must have been nearly 17 years, I was competing on the world circuit for freediving and breath diving. And I decided to just step out and do something very different. So I took a crew, we went up to the Arctic Circle, high up in the Arctic Circle to a place called Kirkenes. In fact, when we arrived there, it was minus 36 degrees. Um, this is way up in Norway. And the challenge for me and the team was to, to go out into a frozen fjord, to cut a hole in the ice and the ice is about 1.2 meters thick. And then I, we're gonna run a rope down into very deep water um, down to uh, 80 meters. And my job was to swim down to the bottom and grab a tag. So you've got, you've got all these combination of, of uncomfortable factors. You've got the, the outdoor air temperature is absolutely freezing. In fact, it's a long way below freezing. And you've got a one-hour trip on a snowmobile uh, to get out to where you're going to do the dive. So you've you got to put your wetsuit on first, back at the, at the uh, cabin, the wood cabin. Do an hour drive out on, on a snowmobile through the forest. Ride on this you know this hole in the ice on a fjord. And then the water temperature is just like 0.2 of a degree above freezing. And so when you put your face into that water, it's like someone's jamming needles into your face. It's incredibly uncomfortable. I would even say Painful. And I would have to leave my face in the water, dipping it in the water for about two minutes while the rest of my body is dry, dipping my face in to try to get my face numb uh, because it was just so painful. When you're looking into the water, it's not like beautiful turquoise water um, when you're up diving in a a hole in the ice. It's like looking into an oil slick. So the dive, the combination of this dive is it's incredibly cold. It's extremely dark. Even if you're wearing torches, they just... Shine into nothingness. There's nothing to to reflect that light back in you. And and the dive is all alone. And you might be sinking down for a minute and a half or two. Um, And as you go down, you're getting progressively more and more crushed by that water um, around you. Um, Because it's so cold at the surface, you can't do any warm up. So you just have to get in the water and go uh, before you start shivering. Um, So then on the way down, you're getting crushed because you can't do a lot of what we call a breathe-up beforehand, you get a big buildup of CO2, which causes you to really feel desperate for breath. And because you're kicking hard, you get lactic acid in your legs. So you get this cocktail of awful stuff happening on a dive on the way down.
0: So you've weighted as well?
1: You've got a little bit of weight on. It's fresh water, so I don't carry much weight. I think I had about one kilogram um, that I was wearing. So it's not a lot of weight. But if you swim it down, you have to swim back up with it. And of course, once you get down to the bottom, if you can make it that far, because equalizing is so very difficult in cold water, then you have to um, turn around at the bottom under eight atmospheres of water pressure and power your way back up to the surface. And yeah, there's other things like the gas exchanges down there cause narcosis, which is like being instantly drunk. And it's very hard to be down there and, and to deal with all this discomfort and fear that you have of how am I gonna make it back to the surface?
0: you get through like walls of different levels of pain and discomfort and then get some sense of ease on the other side of it. And then pain comes again, or does it just, is it just a constant all encompassing 360 degree pain and discomfort?
1: I I think it's more that different parts of that discomfort come and um, hit you at different times. Um, The fear is there through for the whole dive on a dive like that, which is trying to get a world record and, and something that hasn't, you know, obviously hasn't been done before. Um, but it, it's kind of like, yeah, you get the, it doesn't really all hit you at once. It just suddenly builds as you go through the dive. Um, and, and, and the way that I try to think of it is all these different elements for me, I don't want to see them as painful. Maybe the, 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 the first moment you put your face in the water, that's painful, but the rest of the time it's just discomfort and, and anyone can deal with discomfort. It's just that, um, in order to get a world record or to, to improve on my best ever performances, I'm happy to tolerate a lot of discomfort. And, and that's why I say, you know, if, you, if you're prepared to put up a lot of discomfort, you can actually achieve some remarkable things, not just in freediving, but in all aspects of life. So that, the discomfort it builds as you're doing your event um, and freediving for sure. But it's never, for me, it doesn't really ever feel like a 360 moment. Mm.
0: And so is there any safety at this point in time? Is there any... Because I mean, as you said, the lights—you can't see anything. So you've got that crushing kind of—and I mean, naturally, you've got experience of doing all these sorts of things. But still, it must be like a claustrophobic, uh, you know, solo pursuit. Is there anyone else to assist, if? <laughs> <laughs>
1: kind of like so there's no one down there waiting for me like hey how you going i got some tanks down here do you want some of this air there's there's none of that happening (laughs) what i've got though is i've got like so if you think of the guys who are on top of the ice you'll be one one cat's job whose, whose sole role is just to call out the time and the depth so he'll be looking at a uh like a like a fish finder and he'll see me on the fish finder looking like a really big fish swimming down and swimming back up and he'll be able to say 60 meters and he'll be able to also say the time and then 70 meters say the time so everyone knows where I am so if I stop swimming then he'll be able to spot it pretty quickly and they can start pulling up the rope so, so remember there's a rope that's going down there and I'm tethered to that rope I can't grab that rope to, to help me myself and like to pull myself up but it's there as a guide because if I if I lost that rope then You would never find your way out if you went that deep and tried to swim up. You just couldn't find the ice hole that you dived in from. So um, you have to have a road. Yeah. Wow.
0: So the, and when you're hearing those markers of how many meters you've descended, how do you control your mind? So you're not just too far ahead of yourself and going, okay, I'm at 30. I can't wait till I'm at 40 and 40. I'm closer you know, 50, you know, there's these sorts of pressure points as, you know, it would be great to know where you are, but I'd imagine it also comes with um comes with the pressure of expectation being able to reach that next whatever five meters or ten meters. How do you control your mind so you don't keep chasing the next one and, and stay present?
1: Well I don't I so I uh I don't know the depth on the way down. Uh-huh. Um you, you can set up um, alarms on your you know, dive equipment to tell you what depth you're at. But it's it, yeah, it's like you're saying, it actually would make things worse. <laughs> so so all I do is as I'm diving down, I, I kind of know roughly where I am. And, and you, it, you have to use this technique called chunking. And chunking is where you go, okay, for the first 20 meters, I'm just going to focus on my technique and make sure I've got really good kicks off the surface. And that's all I'm going to focus on. I'm not going to think about anything further than just that first 20 meters of really getting in the zone. And then once you find you get to 20 meters, then you're allowed to start thinking about that next chunk, which is, okay, now I'm in the next kind of part of my dive. This is a cool bit. This is where I can slow everything down and just, you know, the, there's not much pressure yet and um, water pressure on me. So I can just kind of now just shut everything down and just really enjoy the ride because I can even stop kicking at this point because I'm going to you know, do a, um, what we call negatively buoyant because the weight of the water above you by 20 meters is so heavy that you can stop swimming and you'll actually start accelerating down as long as you're nice and streamlined. So I'll bring my arms down by my side, I'll relax my jaw, and I'll just like literally switch everything off like I'm playing dead. And I'll be free falling straight down into pitch black darkness at a roughly the, the pace of a fast walk. Um, but, I, but I'll switch off and I won't think about the depth. I'll just, I'll have an alarm that's um, around my, uh, at the back, sort of back of my head and my hood. And it's programmed to go off five meters before I hit reach the bottom so I just patiently wait until I hear that and I will not abort the dive until I hear that sound. Uh, sometimes yes, you kind of go, Oh, did I, did I change the batteries in my watch? it um, feels like I've been going forever. <laughs> so you second guess yourself, but mostly yeah, you just get this alarm. At
0: and so being a solo pursuit, really, I mean, it's a, you think of other sports where people excel other pursuits where there's joy that goes with it. You know, I know you're a surfer, so, uh, you know, there's that side of things or a team sport and they might reach the pinnacle of what they do. Uh, you know, that generally comes with some sort of joy or exhilaration. Uh, this just sounds like pain. uh, (laughs) I know that there's, you know, there are those euphoric states that you can reach with, you know, the breath and, uh, you know, all sorts of amazing experiences through breath training and pranayama and breathing techniques and oxygen deprivation and, how do you um, go in training? Cause there would have been moments where, you know, things sort of go wrong and, and um, you know, you're, you know, you've you've faced with these sorts of confronted with these sorts of challenges, which in fact, I'll touch on the training shortly, but let me come back to the, sorry, let me come back to the, what I wanted to get to is you've it's a team sport that most other people are in, or there's a crowd and you get to the top of the surface after a hunt being a hundred meters below the ocean Uh, below the Arctic Circle, a slab of ice of 1.2 meters. You you get to the top, you've reached the pinnacle, you've broken a record. Is there anyone there?
1: Yeah, there is. So uh there is a there was a small crew of people. So there was, I I had a crew of about five um people for the ice, Ice Dive World Record a couple of years ago. And there would have been about 30 people that arrived out of just, I don't know where they came from. They came out of the hills and and none of them spoke English. They all came in on snowmobiles just to watch this wacky guy trying to break some world record. Um, so it's kind of, it's this weird moment where I, I got out of the ice and, and walked around shaking hands of all these people who couldn't speak English and didn't really understand what the hell I was trying to do. <laughs> um, but I had, but, but to answer your question, like when I have been in places like uh, world championships or um, there's this really big event we call, uh, it's called Vertical Blue, which is about to start again this year um up in the bahamas and when i've to have to 100 meters there in competition and come up to the surface then it's just like there will be about uh, yeah about a team of about 30 people around just yelling and hooting for you and celebrating with you and they do this thing where they all splash the water at the same time as a kind of a celebration it, it does actually make you feel really really good
0: <laughs> yeah well so it's not a solo celebration
1: it's not a solo celebration. No, that'd be pretty boring and mundane, actually. <laughs> you do get to enjoy the moment.
0: When you were talking about the uh, people coming out of the I'm seeing a scene from Vikings or something like that. <laughs> yeah,
1: it did feel a bit like that. It was weird.
0: Yeah. The um, And so just to come back to what I was leaning to before, which was the, uh, the euphoria, you know, the joy that goes with attaining, um, like say, for example, in surfing, if you get barreled, you know, there's a euphoric state that's, pretty hard to compare to many other things. I'm sure standing on the dais or DS as a, as a team with a, with a gold medal or the the grand final medallion, whatever that may be, that would come with that euphoric state and stage um, the, the challenges with going into that euphoric state and the danger. Cause that from my understanding, that is the danger zone. And I think of the likes of um, Alex chumpy pulling, you know, losing, you know, he lost his life uh, with, with, uh, for Spearing yeah. and you know yeah. one of australia's great athletes he um, was watercross and he he died you know he, he drowned um which again sort of coming back to that combination between seeking the euphoric state and stage but also the threat and danger at that level for someone like yourself in that breath holding um zone what 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 does that look like what's that danger zone
1: well, look, I think that this is, there's two parts to what I, I think you're you're getting at. The first part is around um, the safety side of the sport and making you know, and when you're pushing hard in a dangerous sport, then yeah, what's the safety zone and how do you know you're staying within it? Um, the second part is around is there euphoria in the sport because it sounds bloody awful. <laughs> so I'm trying to answer both of those. Um, the first one around the safety is that like you're, you're absolutely right. There's been Like every year, there'll be people who drown in pools in Australia, and it's incredibly sad. There'll be people who drown in spearfishing and freediving. And freediving is a sport where there is a set of kind of, do not break these rules that exist. You obviously need to know those rules. And, And if you follow those rules, it's actually a very, very safe sport. But the moment that you break those rules, like I'll give you like one of the most, sort of the number one rule is you never dive alone you're always diving with someone else at your ability level who knows how to rescue. Now, as soon as you break that rule, uh, just the smallest thing you could, could change about how you feel on that day or you might be under the weather or, or anything like that. And if you push on a dive and it doesn't go perfectly well, you're not going to get an injury you you could probably going to die so it's it's those things where the severity of breaking the rules is extremely high so so when i go to pause up i won't hold my breath for more than 30 to 40 seconds unless there's someone supervising me even though i can do eight minutes so yeah the safety thing's critical If, if anyone's listening kind of goes hey this kind of sounds interesting and i would like to give it a go do a course figure out and learn what those safety things are and that way you'll be set up to make sure that you can have a lot of fun with the sport without any risk the other side of it though is um is is there any euphoria to it Um, and i i believe there is so when i when i'm doing a dive it's a highly introverted pursuit so you go really within yourself and uh it's yeah i can spend weeks in this really introverted state um, where you don't really socialize much or um Talk to many people because you're just so focused on your dive that's coming up. Also, because they're it's quite often quite scary. The dives that you're going to do, but after a dive, there is this this feeling of euphoria is is, is so, so full of like when I did 100 meters, I could not wipe the smile off my face. Like for the next month, every single morning I'd wake up. My first thought in the morning was, "Holy shit, I dived to 100 meters," <laughs> and then and then a smile would come across my face. And honestly, it would just lift me, and I felt so good about it. In fact, even recounting the story, I still feel so passionate about it today. Um, and and so it does give you that. It's this kind of, this knowing that you've been able to go into this very foreign area, super deep under underwater, where you're just not supposed to be. Humans are not supposed to be that deep with just a wetsuit and a mask on, and, and able to kind of feel confident down there, know that they can just get out of that situation and make it back to the surface under their own steam. So to be able to do it and, and you know over a number of years and get to that depth just yeah you know, is incredibly
0: self-satisfying. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I guess there's another part to this that I'd like to understand from you that um, as you said, a lot of this but being between the ears as well. And I I'm aware that you reached a certain point in your career and then deviated your career as in the sports psychologist. And then you felt like a fraud. Um, Is that the right term? You, You know, you went through that. Tell us about that transition from when you went, hang on, I'm coaching all these amazing sports people. So there's the MotoGP guys, there's big wave surfers, there's base jumpers, you know, all these people that you're coaching. And then you sort of had this introspection where you went, hang on, how can I tell these guys what to do? Cause I'm, I'm not sure what I've achieved myself.
1: Well, well I started, uh, when I left university, uh, I'd studied in New Zealand for six years to become a sports psychologist. And um, the reason I got into that was because I loved sport. I was, just loved being around the energy of athletes and had always wanted to be an athlete. But the problem was I was a terrible athlete. Uh, I like surfing was my thing. Um, for so many years growing up but I was I was a terrible surfer like I, I would go into competitions and I would I could not, not even want a heat ever <laughs> and even though I was surfing like so much I know mean, I used to just it was so frustrating so I you know had this realization that I'm not an athlete but I love sports so I'm gonna I'm gonna be a sports psychologist and see if I can help other athletes do their sport better it wasn't until I started you know doing sports psychology like you say with these elite athletes from MotoGP, World Championship, boxers, and um, and, and you know, and speed skiers and stuff, where I realized that I'm I'm okay as a sports psychologist, but I felt this sense of guilt. I felt a strong sense that I was a total fraud because everything I was teaching that was coming out of a textbook, I, I'd never succeed in a sport myself, let alone a dangerous sport. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be able to truly connect with my athletes and feel like I'm being true to myself, then I need to to get better at a sport. So I need to find a sport, practice what I preach by doing all the sports psychology and see if that enables me to improve my own skill to where I actually feel like I could be competitive. And then I thought, if I'm going to do a sport, well, I should choose a dangerous sport because all my athletes that I'm working with are doing dangerous stuff. So I went out and looked around, and I was working in MotoGP at the time. We had a team based in the south of France. And in the south of France, there were probably two or three sports that were kind of met the criteria. So one was paraponting, like leaping off cliffs and and flying with a solid wing. Um, The other one was bullfighting, which was really popular in the region just um, south of us, sorry, uh, west of us in Marseille. And the other one was freediving. And having always come from a, a surfing background, that was kind of the nearest thing. I was like, yeah, I'll go with that sport and see how I go. So, yeah, that's how I got into it. There was the conscious decision that I, um, I wanted to be able to practice I preach.
0: Yeah, so I just chose a sport where you could have maybe a good chance of dying, but not like a 100% chance of dying.
1: <laughs> well, I, I just thought I, I never thought I would do it competitively. I just thought, wouldn't it be cool if I was like say if I was working with you and you're a big wave surfer and, and, and you said to me, hey, and hey, you know, as you're paddling out, you kind of get this little anxiety, this little niggle, you know, on a really big day, then I could say back to you that I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I get that in my sport. That's that's what I was looking for. And then to be able to say, and sure, Sean, here's what I do. But I didn't have that, so I, I thought free diving would give me that. I just didn't expect that I'd be good at the sport um, or want to compete in it. That that came
0: later. So I'm interested in the routines that you would follow, and I'd imagine that that was just surgically precise, leading into not only training but diving. So. What does that look like in those not so much days, but let's say, for example, the hour before you uh, have to descend into a, a, a competition? So yeah, it would start. Before the dive, I should say, and not the competition okay. itself, but actually physically diving. what What does that process look like leading into jumping in the water?
1: Okay, so so firstly, you're right there's gonna be a very structured plan hour by hour of a 24 hour period that leads up to that dive. That last hour, or actually even the last 45 minutes um, is probably the most rigid. So what happens um, if you think I'm just outside of that 45 minute window, I'm driving to uh, the blue hole or wherever that dive is, I'm in the Bahamas and I'm just, I'm now in the car heading there and I've got to be there by sort of 45 minutes out. So in that while I'm driving in the car, I am super relaxed. I am chilled. I'm just chatting as we're chatting now, very, very relaxed and comfortable. I'm not even thinking of um, really the dive coming up. I know it's there, but I'm not really focused on it. Once we get there and now boom, that 45-minute starts, the first thing that happens is I take my gear out and I put my gear on. And in that moment, it's it's a very conscious switching moment. So, uh, I've always found in sport one of the most powerful techniques is to be able to go from, Hi, I'm Ant Williams, normal guy, teach, you know, does this stuff, has a family, has a career, to um, none of that exists anymore. I'm Ant Williams, and all I do is free dive. That's that's what I was born and bred for. And and that moment is when I put my wetsuit on with the final piece of equipment being my nose clip, which is a piece of equipment that you use to keep the the nose in, in, you know, um, when you fill up your lungs. Uh, yeah keep all the air in. And, and so when I put that nose clip on in my wetsuit I'm instantly transformed and my posture changes the way I walk changes and um, my personality changes even to some degree and I become uber confident in that moment and, and that's uh, that's not by accident that's trained into me um, very deliberately over a number of years. But what that means is now I see myself, my identity as being one of the deepest divers in the world. And then I look at the the environment around me, I look at the other athletes. And in that moment, I know categorically that I'm gonna go to hundred meters and do my dive. And that if anyone's competing against me on this day, they'll have to bring their absolute A game because I am going to do my dive without fail. Um, And it's a very strange but important transition And I think most athletes do learn to do that over time, but that's part of my sequence. And then the routine goes right down to the last two minutes of when I'm lying on my back and you have someone yelling out the time. So um, you'll be clicked onto the rope, all these people around you out in the water with this deep um, water underneath you. And they'll count you down from two minutes. So someone will literally yell out two minutes. And then you know, okay, I'm in the timers hands and you'll get to five, four, three, two, one. And on zero, you have to go. So in that two minutes, I have a, a routine that I do in terms of what I think about how many breaths I take. And, uh, and I know once he says two minutes, just by my breathing down to the second, he could not even tell me the time and I would know when to leave because it's always so uh, refined. And then I from there, um, I roll over after taking a huge amount of airing, I roll over and then I'm, I'm now in my program. Um, so to speak, in which uh, I have all these chunks of that program and I then go and just execute on those chunks. Because if you in freediving, if you roll over and you start swimming down and you go, oh, there's a bit of pressure on me, the first thing you can start thinking is, did I take enough, a big enough breath? And then you could kick a few times and go, oh, I can feel some lactic acid. Boy, I've got a long way to swim down to get to 100 meters. Jeez, I don't know if I could do it today. If you don't chunk, that's what often happens. Your brain tends to sabotage you. So having a good routine... And, uh, um, the, the, and, and then a plan for each dive, that's what means you can do, deliver a depth consistently.
0: Cool, and so you mentioned something about that uber confidence as well. And uh, there was a moment in time where you, well, maybe two parts to this. One is from a young age, did you have that? Or did you have a self sense of belief? And then the other part is where was that moment And I believe there was one moment in particular where you you met a coach or spoke to a coach and they instilled this confidence in you. So firstly, did you have it when you were younger? And, And secondly, the moment when it was almost bestowed upon you?
1: Yeah, I think growing up, I had a lot of confidence. I think I was a super confident kid. And then um, reality would hit, kick in at some stage, right? <laughs> Around you know my skill at surfing or my skill at boxing, which was my other chosen sport. Uh, I got really good at boxing, but I was you know never had much aggression in me, so I didn't do well in that sport either. I in the when I started freediving, I didn't think I had a lot of confidence in myself in it. And um, in fact, I remember going to uh, a course over in uh, over in Turkey to actually go and. And learn how to be a better diver and try to get deep, a bit deeper because there weren't many coaches in the world at that stage. So, um, so I traveled over to Turkey and they're all some of the best guys in the world, super deep divers going way deeper than me. I was stuck, I could not get past 50 meters. I've been there like two weeks, I still couldn't get any deeper. And, uh, and, and I remember driving back to the hotel in the back seat of um, the instructor's car in this little beat up old car. He's going to drop me back up at this um, at this hotel that i was staying at, and I leaned forward and I said to him, "Hey, Rudy, what do you reckon, mate? It's been two weeks now. Do you reckon I'm going to be any good at this sport?" And oh, I just remember he like he looked at me with this total look of disgust, <laughs> swerves the car over into the curb, slams on the handbrake, and turns around at me and says to me with great intensity, "And I- you are going to be." in the top three athletes in the world within the next two years, I can, I can almost guarantee it. If you keep up this intensity of training, you're gonna be the top three, maybe in the top two or the top guy in the whole world. And he's still pissed off <laughs> when we drove off back to the hotel. And it really stuck with me. It's like he just kind of injected in me this belief that I was one of the top guys in the world, or, or, or I should be, it was almost like my destiny. And he had seen it within me. And, all, and it was an amazing thing to have that belief from somebody else. Uh, and, and I quickly colluded with it. Now I bought into it. And two years later, I was, you know, I went to the World Championships. I came uh, second. And my ranking for the year was world number three. And I held it for the next five years. I had a couple of uh, world record attempts. I don't, I don't know. If, if it hadn't been for that moment, it just really changed my mindset if, if I would have got there.
0: Mm almost the validation from someone else. And you, I mean, you chose to acknowledge it and accept it rather than discard it as well. I think it managed to, I think it got me to turn
1: down some of my own self doubt as well.
0: Mm. Which do you think that gnawed away at you? I mean, a lot of people talk about it. They come from, you know, a lot of decisions are made out of worthiness and or lack thereof. Do you think that uh, in those moments you could have switched it off or on, or was it just a, you know, high fidelity, yes, switch it on. I'm running with this. And if he's got belief in me, then he's probably mm. right.
1: I reckon in Australia and New Zealand, we're, we're really good at, at actually being too modest about our abilities. And I think it, it, we do it to ourselves because of this idea of tall poppy syndrome. We don't like people to sort of present themselves as being too uber successful or, or great at stuff. So, you
0: know, we like people
1: to be humble. And I think what translates is it's very easy especially in something like this, like a sport, to convince yourself that uh, you can't get to the top, even with all the training and effort that you can potentially put in, this belief that you won't get to the top. I, I see it a lot with kids in different sports in, in Australia and New Zealand where they don't really just have that belief that they can get there. Like I'll talk to skiers, they am like, oh, yes, but the best skiers, they all train in Europe with the best coaches and the best gear and the highest mountains and the best snow. And, and, you know, surfers will say the same things. Um, and in freediving, I, like, I would have people say to me um, early on, Ant, you should give up the sport. It's really dangerous. Um, the best coaches are all in Europe or the US. Um, you have no one here to train with. It's terrible conditions to train here in Australia and New Zealand. There's not water deep enough off the shore. Um, you don't have a boat. Um, seriously, mate, you should just give up now. I mean, you've got a family to think about, and you've got a, a career. Uh, you should be focusing on those things. And It might be sound strange to hear that, that you know, that that sort of thing happens—that people do say those things to athletes. But um, and I barely even saw myself as an athlete at that stage. But they do affect you um, when you get comments like that. So it's easy to kind of go, "Oh, yeah, maybe you're right." So that's why I think experience of getting out and putting yourself where you get to train with the best athletes in the world was the the, the thing I knew I had to do. I wanted to go and see, like, train with a world champion, Russia. And and the, the top Norwegian guy just broken a world record. And my my the belief that I had was I'm going to go watch these guys train. I'm going to train with them for a couple of weeks, and then I'm going to come back to Australia. I'm going to train like 10% harder than they do, and I'm going to see what happens. I'll do it for a whole year, and then I'm going to see if I can beat them. Um, so I think yeah, I think part of it's about getting some external validation, but the other part it's about getting real validation by just seeing if you if you're prepared to put in as much as other people are then why why can't you be the world's best
0: which you would have seen that a lot that you know that 10 percent. i mean skill getting people to a certain stage and state in their professional careers and then you know as we always we always hear about it it's the final piece is you know between the ears and i just wonder about what you see in people uh let's say high performers. Cause you're also, you've got your background in leadership psychology as well. And you've been in and around these people of, of a high performing stage and status in their career. And the difference between say elite thinking and striving versus conventional. Um, and so I've got this thought around striving, you know, usually the absolute high performers have a point to prove and it's quite often, some sort of trauma, uh, you know, some sort of experience that's compelling them forward. What, what do you think in relation to those elite high performers that just have to continue to strive? Um, what makes them different to the, those at slightly lower rungs?
1: Yeah, you well, know, I've worked with a lot of elite athletes um, over the years. And the thing, I think there's two things that really stand out for me those mental characteristics and um, the things that we refer to as mental toughness. For me it boils down to two things that consistently the most elite athletes do. The first one is, is is the belief that no matter what situation they get in in their sport, they are going to be able to come out of it successfully and on top. so that they will always go in believing that they can win. And uh, even when they're the underdog or even when the the cards are down, they'll still believe that they can turn it around and they will fight to the very end. So that's one of the things is this conviction that they will have, that they should and ought to be uh, in that top spot. Um, Often we look into that and go, Oh, these guys are really arrogant. And I actually used to think a lot of athletes were arrogant, but it wasn't, it was, it was about this unwavering conviction and belief that I will be able to handle the hardest opponents and be able to deliver my best performances. The second thing that I think they do, what I see consistently with the highest um, performance, is their emotional regulation, that ability to put themselves in the state of flow and just deliver their best performances almost uh, on tap, on demand. And when I say emotional regulation, it's like um, they're they're able to get to that perfect sort of, level of activation um to sort of be charged up for their sport. Um, they and when things go wrong and get get bad, they're able to shrug them off really quickly, like a tennis player who makes a terrible shot or who's down a game or who's down a set, they, they don't attach to it. They let it go and they focus on being the best version of themselves for the next serve, for the next point. Um, same in golf, same in surfing. It's just, you see it repeated everywhere. It's incredibly hard to do. But the combination of that emotional kind of um, intelligence and, and management with that a conviction and self-belief is a weapon, it's a, is a powerful, potent combination.
0: So do you think that's formed early? Like, is that something, is it a, it seems to me like it's not a learned skill perhaps. Is it something that, if you look back over the athletes you worked with or the leaders or the people that you've encountered, is there a consistent theme in how they were brought up or what they experienced as a, at a young age? Uh, I mean, can you go back that far? Or is there anything that correlates between, you know, let's say the early years uh, and then the latter years of being able to overcome themselves?
1: I Look, at, I think there's a, uh, an extent to which some people are socialised, that what's around and their experiences, sure, might lead them to get there a lot quicker. But 100%, I'm convinced that anyone can learn how to do those two things, uh, how to, you know, how to build their skill and experience so that they believe they can handle any situation, and and then that ability to have wonderful emotional regulation. Um, anecdotally i've seen people learn how to do it myself i've had to learn how to do it i didn't start doing my sport till age 30 i didn't have either of those things before age 30 and within three years you know it's competing um, in sort of the top top tier competitions in the world um, and i look at other athletes in fact i look at other research and all the research shows that you can learn these things um so the great that's the great news about it though is if, if you choose to to really want to make a shift in how you're living and, and what you're successful at in your career or your sport or you as a parent, you can learn these things. You can vastly improve, but it's got to begin with this with this belief that that you can get there and that, and that with the work and with the effort over time and the discipline. And, and that again, right back to where we started at the start, it's the ability to go, you know what? Some of this journey is not going to be comfortable, but am I okay with that? So if I'm, how much discomfort am I prepared to put up with in order to be really successful at this thing? Then anyone can answer that and be the best version of themselves.
0: So, so do you think that then ties into, cause I mean, one of the great chapters I think of all time is um, out of the book, thinking grow rich, the chapter desire, you know, burning desire. And with that burning desire, then generally activates a, you know, a goal setting mechanism and then a plan, uh, does that sort of dovetail all of this? Do you think like having a plan and goals and, and that ability to visualize and sustain, you know, what um, how do those aspects tie into those two key points that you mentioned that you think people can learn?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think those two things you've touched on. One is um, having a clear, clearly articulated goal, a long-term goal that you're working towards, maybe a bunch of short, medium-term goals that, that move you in that direction. Those are almost like no-brainers. you got to have those. Um, there's not many proponents of, you know, you can get to become the best in the world without setting goals. It, it just seems to be like one of the most foundational practices that all athletes do um, is, is really good, clear goal-setting and ambitious goal-setting. The other one is uh, sort of goal-setting. Um, visualization being able to imagine yourself uh, successful in, in whatever it is you're doing. Like, I think that, that that's really important as well. Uh, not, not many people do that side of things. Well, and um, yeah, and I think that's a real learned skill over time. Like I'm working with a couple of athletes at the moment to teach them how to, how to build their ability to use mental imagery to imagine, um, how they're going to perform on the day or, um, you know, even how they want to show up for that day in, in terms of their emotional states. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that sometimes that can be take a bit longer to learn. Goal setting is a really practical, pragmatic thing that you can do, that anyone can do. Uh, and actually research shows that uh, there's this cool bit of research that looked at all the articles and, and you know, uh, research topics that have been done around goal setting, uh, like 600 studies or something. And they, and, and they said, we're going to summarize all of these for you. And they, and they said, basically, on average, if you set goals, it increases your performance by 24%. I was like, holy shit, <laughs> I better
0: set goals. It clearly makes a difference. So then there's personal characteristics, and then there's the application of some, um, some proven methods and milestones in order to achieve. So what about leadership, Anne? in today's modern world? I mean... You know, there's all sorts of expectations and, sorry, let me wind that back. There's all sorts of perceptions as to what good leadership is, which I think a lot of people would see as being telling, you know, telling people what to do. I'm not sure how relevant that might be in today's today's world, but what are the traits and uh, the, the aspects of leadership that you see now that carry organisations into a more um, kind of fulfilling and prosperous work environment uh a more cohesive work environment are there are there new leadership skills that are seeing uh uh, businesses perform let's say for example businesses perform at a a better level well what's fascinating
1: is that despite decades of research on this very question no one has yet answered definitively what are the traits that make the most greatest leaders successful or what really makes them great. There's still a lot of debate around this. There's, there are themes though that, that most of us would go, most of us agree would say, yeah, that that's what we want from our leaders. And it's things, usually the number one thing that jumps out first is emotional intelligence, yeah. that ability to be really connected and understand what emotions are bringing um, when they're around us and also how they make us feel um, and how they sort of maybe even flex their style in order to accommodate um, us and our needs, and where we are in terms of particular tasks that we're working on or projects, so you know that ability to adapt and flex their style as a leader, that ability to kind of just be human and be connected and and uh, treat us in a in a way that really makes us feel um, that we're um, that you know that we're a part of what we're doing here and that we're working towards a really um, something that's actually really important. So we talk about leadership as needing to be purposeful, um, so, you know, that, that leaders talk about why we're here, what we're doing, and, uh, and having a plan and some direction. There's, there's nothing worse than work for a leader that doesn't really talk to you about where you're going. You just show up every day, and you've got to do some work every day. So good leaders, they're really good at setting direction and talking about the purpose of why we're doing this stuff and how it's helping the community, or, or it's, um, it's delivering good, or you know, changing things around us. Um, the, and the, yeah, they'll, they'll, they bring that humility and that ability to really connect with people on a human level, but they're also really goal-directed. So they're focused on achieving outcomes, delivering results for the organization and, and striving towards growth. So there's, that combination of those behaviors, we're calling these the constructive behaviors of leaders. So I'll, I'll give you those again. So it's um, being goal-directed and, and really focused on achievement, being really just... You know, really good at being connected with humans, and uh, you know, treating us as humans, and being good, sort of socially and interpersonally with others, um, and then also caring. So having that care factor, where they see their role as is, is supporting, developing, coaching us to be become the best versions of ourselves. Um, so it's not just all about getting results. They really want to see us come through and be successful as well. So those are the things that that. Um, I look for a an leader, and I know that I try to develop the leaders that I work with. Um, but there's a lot of variation out there in Australian leadership, <laughs> as you might have noticed.
0: And so, what about on a moderate, more moderate level in relation to leadership, just as we think about uh, who might be listening? And it might be anyone from a teenager to someone that's not involved in you know, any sort of large organization, but leadership comes in many different forms in the home and in the community and amongst friendship groups and what have you, are there kind of some core principles that you might be able to translate across to people that might've lost a bit of interest in the last part of the conversation being, well, I'm not a leader, don't have anything to do with leadership, but I think personally leadership comes in all sorts of shapes and sizes and all sorts of variations. Are there some core principles for people that even just leading themselves, you know, for say, um you know this is sort of scratch the surface for them in understanding some core principles about how they can lead themselves and be in and around others what outside of the corporate world and outside of the that sort of entity are there things people can focus on so that they can be um better influence over themselves
1: yeah i think i think everyone should see themselves as as being a leader um uh, you know, personal leadership is one of the most important things we can do, uh, I reckon, on this planet. And what I mean by personal leadership is is, is striving to be the best version of yourself. So, yeah, so striving to be the best version of yourself, but also to help others around you become the best version of them, themselves as well. So rather than putting people down, we try to lift people up. and and provide that support and and help others to to thrive and and be genuinely happy when we see other people succeed. Um, That's a real, um, such a great trait that that I think we can all work on about um, supporting, providing support and development and really helping others. Um, And when I talk about living our best vision of ourselves, it's actually committing to going through some of that discomfort by, um, in order to achieve something that really is meaningful to you so it could be something in your community, it could be something socially, it could be um, something that you do in terms of your family unit, or your sport, whatever it is. But what, when you think about what's what's you living your best version of you, most people when asked that question, they, they talk about the goals that they have, but they also typically talk about the things that they value the most and the principles that they want to live by. Um, so if you kind of never thought about that, then Something I'd really strongly consider is to think about: well, what do I value? What are my core beliefs? How do I want others to experience me? And, and then try to live a life that's true to those values.
0: Mm. And so, the uh, you make a good point within the family as well. You know, so the likes of um, having—I th- I think it is for my family as well. You know, having those sort of core, <clears throat> excuse me, core values that you. Operate within, and I guess there's an anchor point there for almost any organization be it a family or a, a sporting team or whatever it may be. If they're anchored back to values, then there's direction. Um, and I, I can't help but think of as we sort of tail off here the um, the movie The Big Blue for anyone that hasn't, seen that before, <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that one, of Pretty course. Cool. Great yeah, movie. A grip on what this um, what this freediving world might look like. Am I right in thinking that would be the place to go to? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So that's an amazing movie. It's a cult classic that's been around, I think, like twenty seven years. And um, but it's uh, it's a the reason it became a cult classic, I think, is because the director, Luc Besson, managed to really capture the essence of what it's like to free dive. Because it is a bit of a mysterious bloody sport. And the people that do it and do it well are often highly introverted and and get really almost like in a trance-like state um, before they dive and sometimes even after. Um, they really go inwardly and, and on themselves and this this movie just captures that beautifully that sense and if you haven't seen it i'd strongly recommend it of course like being american i'm um, having an american actors in it there's um, love scenes of course
0: because you need those but um,
1: it does have a french director and it's a beautiful brilliant movie
0: but it also has the wonderful uh, i never can quite pronounce his name jean reno the professor Jean reno yeah jean reno Jean Reno, that's it. So. <laughs> yeah, there's that He's a legend. I spent Living in France where you can get the pronunciation right. <laughs> that's right. Three years in France, I had to come away with something. Yeah. It's a little bit different to the Australian pronunciation of John Reno. Yeah. <laughs> Jean Reno. That's it, mate. Hey, um, Ant, thank you very much for your time. Quite selfless in giving up some time away from your family and some really great principles it's a whole new world for a lot of people to understand that uh, submerging into the big blue into the abyss and then fighting the battle within. And then of course, you know, that translating across into daily lives for us all. And of course those leadership principles too, some really core fundamentals to focus on. So mate, very big. Thank you. I appreciate your time, a selfless act taking it, taking it away from your family as well. And um, no doubt you've been holding your breath the entire time we've been chatting. (laughs) My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Sean. No worries. Good to chat. Thanks, mate.